Welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And I have to give a lot of apologies because I have missed a lot of episodes, maybe four, uh, which is disturbing. Um, turns out I was sick and I wasn't, my brain wasn't working well. Um, I thought that I was depressed because my girlfriend was gone. Um, it probably was also a little bit of that, but no, I was mainly sick. So all throughout last week, I was, you know, trying to get through all these books and taking notes and feeling like I was falling behind and wondering why I wasn't able to think about any good stories that existed for my readings. And it turned out that I was just sick. Um, but I did some reading this weekend and I have some good stories for you. Today our big story continues with this big theme of what on earth happened in the Industrial Revolution and how are different ways in which we can look at it. Um, and there's two big industries that people have used to study the Industrial Revolution, iron and cotton. These are usually called like the leading sectors. And focusing on one presents a different kind of story than focusing on the other. So we've talked a bit about the story of the Industrial Revolution through cotton, and this is a story that emphasizes machinery and the global division of labor and basically like the big injustices of capitalism. When we look at iron, however, it presents a different kind of story. This is a story that, like cotton, includes all of these, you know, fantastic inventions and labor-saving devices and stuff like that, but I think that when we look at it today, it shows the importance of cheap energy, of fossil fuels. So what we're going to do today is first I'm going to lay out kind of the old story of heroic inventions that used to be the story of the Industrial Revolution in iron. Then I'm going to move on to talk about how environmental history shifts the story. And finally, I'm going to tell you guys about why you should care. So if I told this story to you guys 50 years ago, maybe even 20 years ago, if I was like not, you know, particularly excited about this sort of stuff, I would tell you the story of the Industrial Revolution in iron as a series of inventions. Um, it would be a little bit hard to understand because, you know, turns out that uh, iron ore metallurgy is actually like kind of complicated, but there's two basic parts of how iron is made. First, you smelt the iron and then you refine it. You also have to shape it and you know cast it, but smelting and refining are the big processes that we have to pay attention to. When you first made iron in you know Northern European metallurgy, you made iron that had quite high carbon content called pig iron because it was made in these sand beds that made it look like a bunch of pigs suckling. Um, it was brittle and had a low boiling point, and so you could make it into things like cast iron pots but it wasn't useful in other kinds of, of applications. To make it useful in other kinds of applications, you had to work it in a finery forge, which meant that you had to boil off the impurities and then you had to have somebody to hammer it so that all the little bubbles that the impurities left would be gone away and it would be uh, stronger. This is called wrought iron. So just to be clear, there's two different processes, uh, smelting and refining, and two different products pig iron and wrought iron. So let's go through some of the quick inventions. Uh, the first one is in 1708 by Abraham Darby I. There are three Abraham Darbys, um, which makes things confusing. Um, but Abraham Darby I started making iron with coke, uh, and coke is basically coal with a bunch of the impurities uh, baked out. Um, and this allowed 
British iron workers to use coal, which was very, very common in Britain, instead of wood, which was less common. But there's kind of a mystery here, because even though Abraham Darby uh, showed that you could make iron with coke in 1708, and he did make a bunch of iron with coke, it didn't catch on. And nobody's really sure why. Some people say that it actually wasn't cheaper. Uh, it's clear that the coked iron uh, wasn't as useful for as many different kinds of processes as uh, uh, uncoked iron because it had a high sulfur content. But on the other hand, uh, it was good for cast iron. So people don't know why. But in the 1750s, finally, after 40 years of having this invention, uh, coked iron starts to catch on from making pig iron or cast iron. However, wrought iron was still something that the British iron workers did not really make. Uh, mostly it was shipped over from Sweden and Russia. The next big advance, however, was in the 1780s, when Henry Court developed the rolling and puddling method for making wrought iron. So it involved indirectly heating pig iron uh, in something called a reverberatory furnace, because the problem with making uh, uh, wrought iron with coal is that coal has a bunch of crap in it. It's smoky. It has all these impurities. And when you're making wrought iron, you're trying to get the impurities out. So if you melt pig iron with coal directly, you're just adding extra, you know, crap to it. You're not going to be able to boil off the impurities. So you needed a way of getting iron melted with coal that did not have direct heat. And this was the rolling and puddling method. Um, and it was actually really difficult to make. You'd have a worker who would be poking this, you know, molten bunch of, of iron with a very long iron prod for an hour uh, rolling this puddle of iron. And it was hard, uh, difficult, skilled labor. But it led to uh, Britain being able to make wrought iron with coal. Um, another big invention is James Beaumont's creation of the hot blast furnace in 1828. And finally, the big one is in 1855, when Henry Bessemer invented what is called the Bessemer Converter. I guess the guy did not have a lot of creativity when it came to names. The Bessemer Converter looks like this big, gigantic metal egg. And in it, you can make steel by blowing a lot of cold air through the molten steel in this egg, taking off the impurities. Steel is kind of like in between wrought iron and pig iron, and it's significantly stronger and more useful than both. And it was incredibly expensive up until the creation of the Bessemer converter, after which time it became, you know, a lot cheaper and a lot of wrought iron became replaced by steel. In fact, if you buy something made by wrought iron, it's probably steel. And because of these great inventions, the old story went, because of people like uh, Abraham Darby and Henry Court and Henry Bessemer, Britain could use coal to make iron, and thus it made the railroads, this massive machine of iron and coal, and then took over the world. But today we have to think about different kinds of processes. Today we understand that these stories of heroic white male inventors who are just, you know, with their minds creating new things is incomplete because there's a lot of social and cultural context. When we start to include that, we realize that it maybe isn't a story of just British genius or engineering might or whatever, but a story of something much more complicated. And here I want to show how an environmental history of iron shows us a different perspective on modern capitalism 
So when we think about iron production before all of these inventions, you know, the thing that comes in your mind is probably a big brick building in a city. But you're wrong. Iron production is a forest industry. When you think of the inputs, you shouldn't think of just, you know, iron and like sooty-faced workers, but wood. There were kilograms and kilograms and kilograms of wood used for every kilogram of iron. That is because to make iron, you needed to make charcoal, and for charcoal, you need a lot of wood. Uh, and so, in early, you know, or pre-industrial iron industries, you had them out in forests next to places where people could make charcoal because you couldn't have them too far away from the charcoal because charcoal was really expensive to ship. And perhaps that leads us to one of the reasons of why Britain developed these kinds of coal fuel technologies first, while other countries seem to, you know, lag behind. The old story was uh, that Britain developed all of these great inventions, and then Europe and China and uh, all these other places that had iron industries didn't catch up because they just weren't good enough at engineering. But when we look at this from an environmental perspective, we realize that they didn't adopt coal-fired ironworking because they didn't have to. Britain was the first country to use coal on a large scale to make iron because they were running out of trees. They didn't have enough trees on their island to make all the ships and heat all the houses and make all the iron that they needed. And so a lot of iron workers started to shift from firing stuff with charcoal, which was cleaner and, you know, easier to work with, to coal and coke, which was cheaper, but harder to work with. And you can see this fact that there's environmental pressures on how, you know, coal and iron were working together with the odd mystery of why it took 40 years for coked iron to take off. You know, the old story has this problem and Abraham Darby realizes that you can use coke to make iron in 1708, but it doesn't actually start being used on a large scale until 1750. And this, remember, is similar to the story of the development of the steam engine. The first Newcomen steam engine was invented in the late 17th century, but it didn't really get into widespread use until the late 18th century. It took about 100 years for people to figure out how to use it. From an environmental perspective, coal-fueled ironworking was important because it replaced forests. Coal became an invisible forest that people could use for not just ironworking, but a bunch of other energy-intensive industries. Uh, that's why I think that it's so important to look not at machines and factories, but energy when we look at what makes the Industrial Revolution. Um, just to run through these, there's some of the biggest industries in Britain, like brewing, um, leatherworking, salt making, candle making, all of these things are heavily energy-intensive because you need to boil stuff. And these are some of the industries that Britain gets really, really good at. But coal wasn't the only way that you could get over the problem of Britain's lack of forests. One way was to import stuff, and Britain was importing a ton of iron from Sweden and Russia, which had a lot of forests. 
But there were also plans in the 1760s and 70s to make an international division of labor with iron the same way that there was an international division of labor with cotton. The idea was, was that you would make pig iron in America, where there were lots of raw materials and lots of forests, and ship over this pig iron to Britain, where you could make wrought iron from it. You would divide up the labor where all the energy-intensive stuff happened in America, and then in Britain you could have the high-skilled stuff to make the stuff that was actually value added. And also understanding the story of iron as one of intense energy use helps us distinguish between a bunch of different arguments about alternative paths that the Industrial Revolution could have taken. Um, there's a strain of ecological Marxist thought that argues that the big importance of coal-fired factories was not, you know, efficiency or, you know, anything like that, but it was that allowed people greater social control over workers. Something that they point to to explain this is that there is an alternative path in which water mills could have replaced steam engines for things like cotton spinning. They say, look, there's a ton of places in Britain in which there were easily accessible high flow uh, water resources which could have been used to make mills. The problem with that, though, is that even if you admit, sure, a lot of these, you know, early industrial processes could have been powered by water, all of these high heat industries, iron, salt, etc., could not have been made with water. And if we treat those as the leading sectors of the Industrial Revolution, it seems that we have a story of just needing coal, that coal would have been the only thing that would have been able to provide enough energy and enough force to do the job. And I just want to point out how explosive this growth was. In 1785, British pig iron output was 61,000 tons. In 1795, it was 120,000 tons. In 1805, it was a quarter of a million tons. And in 1850, it was 2.25 million tons. So this is no longer a story for me of genius inventors. It's no longer a story of, you know, British people figuring out through their native, you know, understanding and their engineering knack how to make the world modern. I think it's a story of resource problems on a small island. And to put this into perspective, let's think of the parable of the two islands that I told you guys about a couple episodes ago. Britain and Japan. Both were early modern kingdoms on archipelagos off of the coasts of large empires, and both faced severe resource constraints due to their growing populations. The Japanese uh, uh, response was to lead to a low consumption and high social control mode of development. People worked really, really hard and didn't, you know, have as much stuff. Britain, however, went to a different path. It went to a high energy use, extensive and imperial way of developing. They sailed out on the oceans and they took over other places. They used their land much more extensively. They continued to eat meat and to burn coal and to do all of these things. From this perspective, the Industrial Revolution in iron is simply yet another moment in this high energy path of development. So why should we care? Well, the big reason why we should care is the railroads. Um, because of all of the cheap iron and the cheap coal that you have in Britain, you have people developing new forms of transportation that undoubtedly change the world. 
it's my somewhat controversial opinion that we should consider the railroad industry, the coal and the iron industry, as the leading industry of the Industrial Revolution, because these new forms of transport allowed the creation of infrastructure that, that made other industries possible, that created national and then international markets, and allowed for a national market in cheap energy. But the use of coal also changed where production could happen. Back in early modern production of iron, ironworks were kind of scattered all over the place wherever there was iron and forests. After you could get coal and iron together, you could have ironworks concentrate in cities. This led to concentrations of workers and capitalists living and competing together, riding out the cycles of booms and busts together, trying to figure out the best ways of making things together. One of the early boosters of the rolling and puddling method suggested that it would be useful because it would allow employers to break the guilds of iron workers who knew how to make iron. If you made this new kind of process, then you could just get anybody off of the street and teach them how to roll and puddle. And you can see this as one of the contexts in which you have the development of class consciousness. You have a bunch of urban workers who are living cheek by jowl, some of whom are highly skilled, who are in this, you know, cutthroat competition with their employers, and they see that it's not only them and their ironworks who this, these processes are happening to, but their friends, their uncles, their cousins, the industrialists' friends and uncles and cousins. Finally, I want to suggest that the plethora of cheap metal did not just change industry, it did not just change economics, but it changed culture. It changed the way that humans viewed their own place in the world. A lot of the big landmarks of the Industrial Revolution in the 19th century are these huge, awe-inspiring iron structures. You think of the Eiffel Tower, you think of the iron bridges in Colebrookdale, and these, to contemporaries, were utterly amazing. They were astounding, sublime, eye-dropping in a way that we cannot appreciate. And I think that the availability of cheap metal allowed humans to construct engineering projects at a scale much larger than people had done before. And this allowed people to view their relationship with the natural environment much more differently. Instead of going up to a mountain and seeing the mountain as this, you know, stunning example of how humankind can never, ever, ever match the potency of nature. Instead now, people could build uh, pyramids of metal. People could build iron bridges that spanned large crevasses. People could build towers of iron that stretched up into the sky. And this made it possible to imagine human beings as living outside of nature, as being able to, you know, go beyond nature, as being able through their, you know, systems of inventions, through their, you know, capitalist uh, uh, accumulation, through the machinery of government and science and industry, to get beyond nature, to escape the cycles of birth and death and limit to you know break out of the Malthusian trap to have infinite growth to reach out to the stars and to dream those big big modern dreams that we have but I think that the big lesson of this is that it rests on coal 
these modern dreams rest on cheap energy. Without there being fossil fuels, we could never have built the Eiffel Tower. We could never have gotten the amount of metal that if you look around yourself, you can see. Thanks very much for joining me on Making of a Historian. Uh, I have to thank, as always, Jonathan Lear for the music and Duncan Barton for the image. If you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes. Uh, do all those things that you do to things that you like on the internet. Uh, there is a like Twitter uh, campaign right now called Tripod, hashtag T-R-Y-P-O-D. Uh, the idea is that in the month of March, podcasters are trying to get people to recognize that podcasts exist. I know I'm a very small podcast with a, li a listenership in like the dozens, but if you could use the hashtag Tripod uh, to tell people about this podcast, it might be a big help. And I will be back tomorrow without this, you know, disgusting, grumbly, still have sick voice. Thanks very much for listening.